Hello, I'm Amanda Moore. I'm the director of the Clearinghouse Community. Welcome to the Advocacy Exchange for July 2018. The Advocacy Exchange is our monthly conversation with advocates advancing change. Both the Advocacy Exchange and the Clearinghouse Community are brought to you by the Sergeant Shriver National Center on Poverty Law, a national leader in advancing justice and opportunity. Today I have with me two guests, Bill Kennedy and Ada Shin Jaffe. Both Bill and Ada have been in the social justice legal world for over 40 years, and they were both uh, initial members of the advisory committee for the Shriver Center's Racial Justice Training Institute, and they have both been faculty members and coaches during the course of RJTI. We're so happy to have them with us today. Ada is joining us from Seattle. Hi, Ada. Hello. And Bill is joining us from Sacramento, California. Hello, Bill. Hello, Amanda. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. Uh, Bill wrote our current article that's on the Clearinghouse community. It is called The Diversity Bonus, What Public Interest Law Firms Have Missed Regarding Diversity. It can be found on the Clearinghouse community at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. And we're going to talk about just what that is that we have missed about diversity. Bill, I want to jump right to the punchline. What exactly is it that we've been missing about diversity? Well, I... Most programs um, embrace a commitment to diversity, but but no one has ever asked why. Uh, and and as I was working on debiasing with many programs over the last five years, we were debiasing, but uh, and debiasing systems within a program, but never asked to what end. And so. My research over the last six months, which relies so heavily upon Professor Scott Page at the University of Michigan, who has written three books, uh, 24, series, uh, 24 lecture, lectures on the subject, and uh, scores of YouTube videos, basically tell us that this is beyond a moral commitment. It is beyond a political commitment or a legal commitment that, in fact, quite simply, diverse decision-making in a program makes us smarter, makes us more productive, and makes us better able to withstand the changing environment in which our work unfolds. But failure to realize this puts us in a position where we basically are exploiting people with diverse talents and not incorporating their insights into the most important decisions of the program. So the science tells us that in decisions that require prediction, that require evaluation, or, or impact complex systems, that groups make better decisions than individuals. That diverse groups make better decisions than homogeneous groups. And that in setting up decision-making groups, talent by tenure or experience is only of equal value to diversity. So when you set up a group to make decisions, make important decisions, you can take someone hired just, just recently who has a diverse perspective, diverse heuristics, diverse models, and place them with your most experienced advocates. And that's the way you, you um, secure what Scott Page calls the diversity bonus. 
Excellent. Um, and, and those types of decisions that you're talking about are the types of decisions we find ourselves making often in a legal program. I want to say hello to some people who have said hi on the live chat. We have Noah in Seattle, Jennifer in Baltimore, and Diana in Ann Arbor. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, Bill, I'll stick with you for a second. So um, you mentioned moral grounds or legal grounds um, as a basis for wanting diversity in a program, but you say that those are really not sustainable basis for this kind of um, embrace of diversity. Why are those not good enough? Well, the problem with moral commitments is that they're relative. They're shifting sands. And social psychologists, cognitive scientists, even mathematicians will tell you that your morality changes based upon context. Also, I will tell you as a privileged white male for 40 years sitting in rooms with other privileged white males making decisions that um, often morality is a, is a function of rationalization. We can basically rationalize and claim to be moral nearly every decision we make. So with those shifting grounds, it, it just allows us too much latitude and it doesn't focus on the reason we want diversity. The reason we want diversity is to make better decisions. So it was my hope that this article would move the discussion out of politics and into the province of science and mathematics, where it is conclusively proved that diverse decision-making is better than homogeneous decision-making. Um, and the, and, and so uh, there are many examples, I mean, uh, industries in the information age that have done this, Silicon Valley, the Fortune 100, even military organizations um, have, indicate, have, have adopted diverse decision-making and basically secured the, decision, the, the diversity bonus. Ada, I wanna turn to you. Um, I know that while we've been talking about this, it became clear that you all have a feeling that this is really urgent, that this isn't something we can just sort of toy around with considering. Can you talk a little bit about, about why there is this urgency? Uh, as you mentioned, Bill and I have both been doing this uh, for four decades or more apiece. Um, and during that time, uh, we've seen this recent cascade of events, I would say starting with Katrina Ferguson, Tamir Rice, Charlottesville, pre-election, post-election, um, and that puts us in the kind of shape as social justice uh, committed people where uh, we're witnessing almost every single day the dehumanization and the devaluing of any community that can be, quote, othered. Um, and um, what specific role do we in law and justice have in countering that? And I've reduced this to what I call the four R's which are to repudiate the dehumanization and devaluing using the tools at hand that we have. The second thing is to resist the rollbacks of all of the legal protections that have made us a more just and humane society over the past six decades. The third is to realign ourselves into a, a solidarity movement where there's no competition or silos among and between social justice movement organizations so that we can feel our power and not squander it. And then finally, renewal, which is community care, so we can endure the onslaught 
which is going to be a marathon surely and not a sprint. So to me, this is what lends urgency. This is why the um, uh, people are calling uh, me and uh, Bill and others who have served as faculty at the Schreiber Center's Racial Justice Training Institute uh, to the point where our phones are ringing off the hook and we don't have enough capacity to um, answer people's calls for help, which is why it's so exciting that 28 states and the District of Columbia are all participating in this call. Thank you, Ada. Bill, did you have something you wanted to add about why it's urgent to adapt to this kind of diversity logic? I, I would say this, that um, yes, there is urgency. And uh, just to bring it home to uh, something that's happening this week is that we're all shaken by the prospects of a new Supreme Court justice uh, who could change the nature of uh, jurisprudence for decades to come. And, and it would be easy to say that we just don't have time for this. And we don't have time because we have to deal with these more pressing, pressing issues at the door. But I would suggest to you that now is the time to begin dealing with um, diverse decision making. If you're going to try and address in any way or explain to your client, the client groups that you represent, the importance of the decision that is uh, coming regarding, um, well, any of, any of the new administration's initiatives, um, put together a diverse group, work through it, and uh, shed the comfort that comes from homogeneity. In the race equity movement, we have uh, a, a phrase uh, uh, that we're fond of saying that comfort is our enemy. And many of us become very comfortable in our practice. We, we, we redefine to exclude those most pressing issues in order to find comfort in, comfort in our day-to-day -day work. And I think that um, the, a, a recent book that I would commend to you all called Enlightenment Now uh, by Steven Pinker describes what happens when we do this. And it, it's something called entropy. Entropy is what we're fighting against. Entropy is the process by which a closed system becomes less structured, less organized, and less able to accomplish interesting and useful outcomes until they slide into an equilibrium of gray, tepid, homogeneous monotony, and they stay there. Anyone who's lived, worked in social justice for, uh, for a long time sees programs start with this great level of engagement and then withdraw in entropy causes them to withdraw into this gray, tepid um, state of entropy. To fight against that, we need to change the way we think. And we need to stop exploiting people who have different talents, who have different um, different viewpoints, different heuristics, methods of solving problems, and we need to incorporate them in the most important decisions of the corporation. It means that we give up hierarchy to some extent in favor of the promise of a diversity bonus. Well, we are, um, I'm ready to turn to the practical of how we do this. We have a couple of questions that have come in that I think are getting at that. The first question though is a question of definition, and I think it's important to establish this before we move on. Um, Alicia in uh, New York writes, if you or asks if you could talk a little bit about why it's important to figure out what diversity means to each particular group and how you go about doing that and getting buy-in. So what do we what we're saying, we're throwing around this word a lot, diversity, diversity. What do you what do you really mean when we're talking about diversity in thinking um, in group decisions like this? You, that's a great question, and I think that uh, Professor Page and uh, the others who, who've been doing this work for the past decade or more 
um, they make clear that when we're talking about diversity, we're speaking of cognitive diversity, the way people think. And so we want to have cognitively diverse teams, people who view the world differently, people who solve problems differently, people who make different associations. Now, the, that doesn't leave out the issue of racial or identity diversity because there is a very common um, commonality. I mean, there's a, there's a very high correlation between cognitive diversity and identity diversity. So it, it's just to say not every not every person who has who comes from a particular identity group is necessarily going to bring cognitive um, you know, cognitive skills uh, that are different from the majority. Uh, some have already assimilated so much that it's not there. What we want to find is people who have cognitively diverse ways of engaging. Um, if you're African-American, I am told, and live in this country, certainly your, um, your view of how the country works would be substantially different. As privileged white men, like me, uh, we don't consider that. Uh, we need diverse people in the room when important decisions are being made so that that can be considered of diverse perspectives, diverse heuristics, diverse models, and diverse associations that make us stronger as decision-making. We have to create a new tolerance for having the assumptions that we make questioned. When we question those assumptions, we open the door to new and better means of thinking. Well, we had another question come in that really is getting at the heart of the, the practical, the how-to. And Ada, I'll turn to you for this one. This question comes in from Denny. And Denny asks for suggestions. What suggestions do you have for hiring and retaining a diverse workforce? How do we make this really happen? Uh, well, it's, In three minutes or so, Ada. <laughs> it's difficult in some organizations because, as Bill points out, if you have people in positional authority who've been doing the hiring in a model that's based on the dominant white culture, which would be uh, LSAT scores, law schools, rank standing, et cetera, et cetera, um, then the um, urge to perpetuate those metrics is great. It's the status quo. And to break away from the status quo based on any of the diversity factors, which could be age, disability, religion, ethnicity, and race, social class, sexual orientation, membership in an indigenous group, national origin, or gender identity, plus I'm sure many others people can think of, including geographic diversity, which I'm sort of answering the first question first, um, which uh, uh, highlights things like the rural-urban divide, uh, which um, evidences complete differences in mentality, as well as generation gap issues, which I certainly experienced while teaching at a law school. Um, and the frames of reference for all of those forms of diversity uh, have to break through an entrenched pre-existing model, which is very, very difficult. And the best way to start to get there is to do an organizational self-assessment, which Shriver modeled on three 
basic questions. One is how are you doing in terms of racial inclusion at the board, staff, positional authority, volunteer, community, um, partners level? Most of us not that well. Uh, the second um, marker or metric is how are you doing on racial competence? So uh, along the lines of Bill's article, how much training is there on the existence of implicit bias? What is stereotype threat? What is race anxiety? What are the social cognitive markers that keep us from moving forward? And then the third would be, how are we doing on race equity in the advocacy work we're charged with doing itself, which demands authentic community engagement with, in the words of uh, the director of Columbia Legal Services, those communities most harmed historically and currently by structural oppression and furthest from power to do anything about it. So you have to start with creating data about how poorly or well your organization is doing. And then whether you're in the middle and trying to manage up or you're at the top, uh, you start to say there's cognitive dissonance here between our rhetoric on our website and our mission statement and our ability to deliver on it. We've lost 50% of all the people of color we've hired in in the last five years. Something is wrong, not with the individual we've hired, but with the system that we're using. Amanda, can I just add to that and say that um, in the spirit of the article, I would begin by setting up a diverse group uh, within the program, and diversity includes jobs. So you want the receptionist perhaps, or paralegals, you want people inside and outside of management. Set up a small group of eight to 10 people to examine every step of your, um, your hiring process. And there is a great, um, a great resource to do this uh, with the RJTI. It looks at where bias can manifest at every step of the um, uh, of the hiring process and suggests things that are going on in the field currently to address that bias. So it's a meticulous job. You can introduce diverse decision making in examining this process. You can use incorporate the science by using the documents uh, at, in the RJTI library and go through step by step by step where bias may hide in our hiring. And hiring does not stop at the point the person is hired. We continue that to uh, beyond mentoring and, and retention. So hiring and retention is one thing. Uh, and so uh, I think there are resources to help you do that. But in the spirit of this article, you don't have management to it. You have a diverse group of uh, thinkers come together and bring in as many perspectives on the challenge uh, as you can. And that requires being sanctioned by management or positional authority to give the space, the resources and the time for that to occur. You know, that was the second part of Alicia's question earlier was, how do you get that kind of buy-in? How do you go about doing that? That's a whole separate call called managing from the middle. So let's, uh, that would well, take the whole half hour. We'll table that one. Okay. Um, you both did mention several resources in your answers to Denny's question. Is there a place people can go? Because we do just have half an hour. Bill has a great article with a lot more in it. It's a lot about the framework and he's promised more of the implementation in an article coming um, in the future. But where can people go for those resources right, right now? 
Well, um, I'll take a stab at it and I'll jump in. Um, certainly the race, uh, the Racial Justice Training Institute at Shriver has now up-trained 150 race equity fellows. They're all around the country. I've coached seven teams all around the country. Bill has coached um, many teams as well. And they're forming an empowered network of people who've been up-trained in a lot of this social cognition and so forth. Although I will say the article is in advance over what everybody's been trained to do, which is why it's so exciting that, that it exists. Um, and in Washington state, as an example, after all of those horrible events, Philando, Castillo, Charlottesville, the whole litany, um, a small band of people, just uh, three to five people, said we cannot continue the status quo and do nothing. We have to do something different. And so they started something called the Washington State Race, Equity and Justice Initiative, which we call Reggie for short. Um, and um, you can see all the Reggie documents posted at um, Race, Equity and Justice Initiative. I know it's a mouthful, at wordpress.com. And just so people know, we're about to launch in two weeks a comprehensive race equity toolkit for uh, equity and justice organizations. It's still undergoing its last revisions and also permission seeking from the various tools that are in, embedded in there. Um, but we can get it to Amanda and she can send it out to everybody in the, um, the emails that you send out after this call. Great. That's what I was going to ask if we could do that. So I'll remind everyone, you will get uh, an email maybe tomorrow, maybe early next week um, that will have some links in it. And we will be sure to include the resources that Ada and Bill have mentioned during today's conversation. Um, I, I want to stick with this how to and, and what you've seen, um, where you've seen this happen. Ada, you mentioned Washington and the, and the efforts there. Would you like to add anything to that about how you've seen a program actually make this happen? Yes, um, we have something called the Alliance for Equity and Justice in our state. And um, there's a access to justice board, which was created by our state Supreme Court. And we call it the ATJ board. The ATJ board has issued a state plan for this year and next. Uh, which names race equity as the number one central priority. There are many other priorities around that, but um, as a result, there's a tremendous amount of up training that's going on. The resources for training will be on that website that I just mentioned to you earlier, so you could catch up where probably many of you are ahead of where we're, where we're at as well. Um, and then um, there are a number of organizations that have been doing this work and all of their templates will be on the website. Uh, so for example, Columbia Legal Services has a template in which no work is undertaken without first being taken through a race equity lens, which starts with the first question. The first question is, what communities most impacted by structural racialization are engaged in identifying this as a priority for our work? And if you cannot answer the question, you don't take the case. So that's an example of a front end screen. Another thing I just wanted to mention because it's so interesting is that um, in, in terms of hiring practices, the race equity and justice, or, uh, the Reggie uh, initial document is called the acknowledgements and commitments document. So we acknowledge that white privilege exists. We're not gonna argue over it for you know, 10 more years. Um, and um, the commitments are to do things like Bill suggests in the article 
And so for some of the organizations in the Alliance that people are applying for jobs, uh, they get sent a copy of the acknowledgements and commitments and they're asked to write a few paragraphs. Uh, how will you integrate Reggie into your work? And that has resulted in some essays coming forward which deserve the Nobel Prize. And it's also resulted in a number of people withdrawing their application because they can't answer the question. So it's very efficient. Thank you, Ada. And Bill, we've had another question come in, but Bill, just quickly, are there other examples that you have seen um, outside of Washington State? I can say as someone who lives in the South, sometimes we're interested to hear about non-coastal places that make things happen. Do you have, have you How seen this? How about Tennessee? Tennessee What's is doing it? some great work. Um, uh, for the past three years, they've been looking at systems within the program to add a uh, race equity uh, lens um, I mean, basically, if we're not looking at race, we're saying it doesn't matter, and yet every one of us knows it does matter. So, uh, yeah, the legal services of uh, Central Tennessee and the Cumberlands uh, is doing great work. It's also going on in Florida. Florida has a statewide uh, uh, effort to incorporate race equity into all of their work, including hiring, including case handling. Um, I, I want to say proudly that uh, Michigan is going through the process right now. For the past year, they've been putting together what will be their first um, uh, meeting of all programs in, uh, in the state to uh, discuss incorporating the race equity lens into their work. Now, it may sound like we're not talking about the same thing. This article was intended to say, why is it that we are seeking this? What is the end game? Everyone is trying to put race back on the table. Everyone is trying to diversify staff, but we weren't very clear on why. Now we want to know, and, and, and the moral reasons were insufficient for policy. What we want to know is there are scientific reasons to do this. They're mathematically provable. And the question is, and, and most of people in the information industry are using them, why not us? That's, that's the question. So Tennessee, Michigan, Florida, my old program, Legal Services in Northern California, has for years, decades perhaps, been doing joint decision-making with regard to case acceptance and case handling. No one, is, no one has um, free agency to decide whether, whether a case is taken or how it's going to be proceeded. And, and the broader decision-making means that rather than simple, narrow remedies, we're getting much broader remedies. So you can look to uh, legal services of Northern California as well. Um, Illinois. That, that, oh, flows, go ahead. that flows into a question that um, we received from Fabiola. She, um, she says, so you're talking about, you know, the, the key part is we're bringing in we're, no one person makes these decisions. And so her question is, how do you support those with diverse viewpoints and backgrounds who have been tapped with helping an organization to uh, more deeply engage in diversity? Ada, I think you had some thoughts about that. Yeah, one of our problems, and it's not just our community, if you look at law schools, for example, um, it's the three uh, students of color who are on every brochure, even though they're in a class of 300, everybody's seen that. Uh, so this is tokenism for optical and political purposes, and it happens to everybody. It certainly happened to me as an executive director, and it's happened in many um, organizations that I've uh, coached where the people of color feel uh, that they're being used and not given the amount 
of power and authority, including a voice at the table that's equal to those who are not people of color. And they become demoralized and they leave, or they are able to function at far less capacity than they should be able to function at. So um, dealing with tokenism, calling it out, making sure that we aren't perpetuating those models um, is really important. And I think Bill gets to a little bit of this in his article where he does talk about uh, uh, the third uh, category or stage where we include people who have um, American Sign Language capacity or they, they're able to speak Bosnian or they're there for reasons that broaden our ability to serve, which there's nothing wrong with that. But when they're siloed into a little, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a little um, place where that's the limitation of their role, <clears throat> that becomes exploitive. Um, and so supporting for the support for those people really requires white allyship by people in positional authority who have power and who are white. And it requires the administration to support affinity group space for people of color or any affinity group that's a target or um, uh, a lesser positional power and less lesser societal power in terms of the uh, white default power structure. Thank you, Ada. Um, we are at the end of our time, basically. Bill, if you could quickly answer just sort of a, a closing question. Can you paint for us um, what it looks like when a program has truly embraced um, diversity logic and, and captured this diversity bonus that your article describes? We become a more robust program that can change with the time, engaging in the real problems that are immediate with our clients uh, in a way that broadens the the, the, the engagement to include not necessarily litigation, not necessarily, actually, let me step back. We stop making widgets and we start creating new, um, new methods of advocacy which have greater impact. The problem is when we, entropy moves us into a situation where we are just counting the number of evictions or fair hearings that we're processing. Those are widgets. They don't require any particular thought. We want to capture the thought that will allow us to embrace um, uh, our, our challenges, our mission more broadly, and engage in many ways that white leadership, of which I was a part for so many years, has not allowed us to do. There is strength in diversity, but we, we have yet to recognize what that strength is. Now we have science and math that tells us, and the rest is in the article. So I'd like to hear from Ada. Well, I'll just close with a quote from Bill that I stole from him off of his Facebook. Um, and I just love this quote. He says, we were born for these times. We trained for these times. While we did not invite this darkness, we will each of us in our own way shine the light of dignity and respect for all. Thank you so much. It's a, a wonderful note to end on. Um, thank you. And thank you both for being here thank today. You. And I want to thank all of the audience and remind you that for more on this, much more, um, read Bill's article. It's called The Diversity Bonus, What Public Interest Law Firms Have Missed Regarding Diversity. You can find that at povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. 
Um, if you found today's program interesting and Bill's article interesting, please join our mailing list so you'll be notified of future content. You can join at connect.povertylaw.org slash clearinghouse. And I'll remind you that the Advocacy Exchange is available as a podcast, and it's now available on Google Play as well as iTunes. And finally, I'll invite you to join us for next month's Advocacy Exchange. We'll talk about how attorneys and clients of civil legal aid programs, even those funded by LSC, can work with the media to raise public awareness of their issues. My guests will be Kevin DeLibon of Legal Aid of Arkansas and Soren Dalrosmussen of Voices for Civil Justice. That will take place on Wednesday, August 22nd, same time as today, 1 o'clock Eastern, 10 o'clock Pacific, and the link to register will be in that follow-up email that you'll receive in the next few days. So we hope that you will join us next month. And in the meantime, remember that you're not alone out there. Thank you. <music>